Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robertazzi. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest today is Justine Greenland Duke. Justine is Head of Knowledge Management at MasterCard Foundation, where she helps people, teams, and organizations make sense of apparent complexity through the thoughtful use of technology. For over 15 years, Justine has focused her efforts on philanthropic organizations. Previously, Justine has also pursued careers in dance performance and choreography. Justine tells us about knowledge management and how it is used inside philanthropic foundations, how working backwards from a strategy can make knowledge useful, and how honing a combination of technical skills and creative skills can help you recognize patterns in both your professional and personal life. Justine tells us how gymnastics and dance taught her about discipline, communication, and simplifying ideas, and how those skills helped her to transition into a parallel professional career. Finally, Justine shares some tips for managing professional transitions, including taking a break, serendipitous relationships, talking out loud, and journaling. Well, we are happy to welcome Justine to the show. Justine, great to see you. And so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Welcome. So you and I know each other because of our work in the nonprofit philanthropy space. And particularly in the last year or so, uh, you're serving as a mentor in the Emerging Leaders Initiative that I run. I've had been on a couple of calls, and that's why I found out a little more about you and your background, which is why I invited you on to the show. And I think it's going to be a great conversation. But before we jump into that, maybe we'd spend a little time talking about knowledge management because it's maybe not as uh, straightforward as some of our other guests who are maybe software programmers or physicists. So, so getting a little bit of a description of what you think of when you think of knowledge management and then how you apply technology to it would be a great place to start. In its simplest form, knowledge management is about getting the right information to the right people at the right time in the right format. So it's really looking at an end-to-end process of sourcing the knowledge that uh, you know a specific audience needs and then finding a way to get it to them in exactly the format that they'll use it most quickly. So we want to see that knowledge applied. Um, within the context of foundations, this takes a lot of different forms you know, and um, as it does in different sectors. So you might see knowledge management in law firms where, you know, they're particularly interested in documenting case precedent so that, um, you know, a lawyer on a new case can kind of look at the way similar cases have been handled in the past and, and um, whether they were successful or not. If you look at um, knowledge management within a pharmaceutical company, it's a totally different thing. You know, it's about intellectual property, and um, retaining, um, you know, protecting that intellectual property uh, so that the pharmaceutical company has a kind of a comparative advantage. So um, within the space of philanthropy, which is where I've been spending the last uh, almost two decades, we're really looking at how do we leverage knowledge uh, to increase the programmatic impact of the organization. And um, sometimes that means 
really it mobilizing a lot of evidence and informed opinion um, and lived experience related to our program areas, whether that's, you know, in education or in health or in, in arts and culture. Uh, but sometimes it's about really tapping into what we know as an organization about how to mobilize our resources for the greatest possible social impact. Um, so it, it actually, a lot of the time, knowledge management within the setting of foundations is about the practice of being a foundation, being a philanthropic organization and giving money away. So how do you do that really well for the greatest, you know, the greatest social, social impact? So a lot of the work, you know, that I currently do in knowledge management is capturing that know-how, uh, codifying it and figuring out how to uh, incentivize behavior change so that though that knowledge is in practice at the foundation. And in terms of the way that we leverage technology, well, what way don't we? You know, uh, technology is so pervasive in everything that we do now. But I would say particularly for knowledge management, you know, obviously by using technology, we're able to capture far more knowledge or far, far more evidence. We can handle larger volumes and in a lot of spaces, the volume is absolutely um, unimaginable. There is just so much evidence, so much content, so much information about a particular subject that you need a machine to help uh, capture it and make sense of it. We also use machines to identify or technology to identify signals, patterns in the same way that a data analyst would. So we look at a body of knowledge and um, we, we analyze it. And that could be analyzing numbers or words or sentiments, um, pictures, but we, we try to make sense of a large body of information to glean the insights from it, to identify the best practices, or maybe even the most promising practices, and then triangulate it. So I often find technology is really useful when we're trying to pull together different threads, um, different sources of information on a similar subject. So as I mentioned earlier, we might be pulling together evidence that comes from an academic exercise, like an evaluation or a randomized control trial. And we pull that together with some um, lived experience of maybe the people who participated in the randomized control trial. And then the informed opinion of, say, a policymaker who wants to see some behavior change, wants to incentivize um, a, maybe a new policy. Um, and has their own opinion about how to mobilize this knowledge in whatever sector you're working in. So technology is really beneficial for that because we can demonstrate quite quickly that we've pulled together all of these different pieces of information and then presented in a medium or a media that is most conducive to it being absorbed and then consumed, processed, and applied. So you said, of course, collecting information and then tying it to, um, to outcomes. So that for me is always the, the very interesting part. Like how do you start with raw data, tie it to the evidence? The question is like, how do you separate, separate out the signal from the noise? What frameworks do you use? Are there models that other people can learn from? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so first and foremost, form has to follow function. So our function is often um, expressed in our strategy. And our strategy is going to articulate what are the desired outcomes or the desired goals of our investment of, a of any kind of resource. With the foundation, obviously, it's, it's money, um, it's time, it's intellectual capital. Um, and so really what I look back is I work back from those outcomes and I say, okay, what are the most strategic areas of knowledge uptake that we need to, to see in order for us to have greater strategic impact? 
And so it might be a, a specific type of uh, subject. It might be a specific practice. It might be a specific way of interacting with uh, people. So, for example, with our um, with the foundation I work with right now, one of our uh, core values is co-creation. And that's very unusual for a foundation, actually. There are not a lot of foundations who are adamant about co-creating with their funding recipients. So we don't fund an organization who's already got a project kind of baked. We work with them to develop that project. And yet not everyone comes into the organization knowing how to do that well. And so sometimes having to codify how you do that is actually the way to getting to the best strategic outcomes. Um, so it's, it's very much in the how that we do our work as well as in the what we were doing. Um, and uh, then, you know, the destination that we're trying to, trying to get to. Um, and so in terms of, you know, picking up on those signals and ignoring the noise, we really look to the strategy to determine where we should be putting our efforts. It's almost like a strategic filter um, so that we can, you know, frankly, all knowledge is good, but not all of it is useful. And so you do need to uh, put a filter on before you start capturing and bringing knowledge into the organization so that it's useful. Uh, If you brought it all in, then people would just be overwhelmed and they'd be learning about things and sharing information about stuff that doesn't necessarily matter to our strategic goals. So it's really about looking at the strategy and working backwards from that. And again, technology is really useful because strategies change. So if we capture a whole body of content or work with a partner who's already doing that because we don't always try to do it ourselves and recreate the wheel, but we leverage the kind of knowledge repositories that have already been created by others. And if that content has been tagged adequately and uh, accurately, then we can start to use those tags to to filter on terms, um, criteria, characteristics that align with our strategy. And then right from there, we're filtering the source content so that we're not even working with a body of content that maybe is overwhelming or kind of not on target. So we target the content first, pull out the stuff that's the most relevant, and then start to make sense of it. Like we said about not all knowledge is uh, useful. Uh, maybe not all data and information. I think knowledge at some point has to be useful, but maybe the, you get so much data and information. Well, I'd like to actually transition from knowledge management to transitions. I guess we were on a call a couple months ago, and you mentioned a little bit about your past, which you've spent time as a competitive athlete, as a dancer, an artist. And now an expert in knowledge management, and I imagine there are a couple other stops along the way. <laughs> so I'd love to hear a little more about your, your feeling on, on making those transitions and, and maybe what knowledge you gained from them. Yeah, another one of my favorite subjects. Um, the, con- you know, the, the subject of transition for me is, is maybe even more interesting than the subject of leadership now. You know, when we talk about leadership, I think about you know, those who have made their way through transitions and learn from them. It's like, you know, in the startup world, you're looking for people who have failed because they've learned so much through that process and, and, you know, demonstrated resilience coming out of it. So, you know, as a child, I was uh, really physically active and my, you know, had a hard time sitting still. My parents recognized that, my family recognized that and found that gymnastics was a great place for me to spend quite a big, you know, big portion of my time. So every day after school and once on the weekend, I would go to my 
local um, gymnastics club, which was actually housed in the University of Toronto. It was associated with their varsity team. And um, I would learn the skills associated with gymnastics. And, and I just loved it. You know, it was actually what took me to the, um, the, the, the wilderness every summer. I was um, training over the summer at a camp that was in Northern Ontario in a place called Tomogamy. Um, so it, 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 was a, it was a way for me to learn um, not only about um, gymnastics, but it was also a way for me to get out of the city and, and start to enjoy the, the wonders of our natural environment here in, in Ontario, Canada. As with a lot of uh, gymnasts, you approach that age where you start to think to yourself, what am I going to do with this? Um, how serious do I really want to get? I was competing um, at the provincial level, you know, had aspirations to go to the Olympics, had always kind of imagined that one day I would be the next Nadia Kamenich, you know, every little girl's, uh, you know, role model during that era. And uh, my mom, you know, she was a real pragmatist and said, well, if you're really serious about this, then let's let you know, let's let, let's let you learn for yourself what it would take. So we went and spoke to some, um, you know, uh, highly, you know, highly regarded co coaches of competitive gymnasts, and they were certainly not in the city. Uh, you had to leave the city for that. And they said, okay, so if you're serious about this, then uh, you need to plan to move in with your coach and see your, your family and your friends on the weekends. Um, you need to train before you go to school in the morning and maybe even shorten your school day so that you can train, you know, in the evenings. Uh, and and when I started kind of thinking about that lifestyle, I realized it wasn't for me. But of course, I was devastated. Gymnastics had been a huge part of my life for so long. And um, again, my mom said, well, what's the thing that you love the most about gymnastics? And at that time, it was dance. So it was the dance that was involved in, it was the artistry. Um, and it was the showboating, you know, it was the performing. And so she said, well, let's introduce you to contemporary dance. She was at the time in art school, uh, and so she knew a lot of people in the arts world um, and connected me uh, with a contemporary dance, um, a dance theater company that was teaching uh, kids. Um, so I started that and realized right away that not only was this really good timing for me, um, you know, in terms of the big decision that I had to make, but it was also really good because it showed me Un, you know, unfortunately, not the way that gymnastics had showed me that you could have a personality and you could express yourself creatively. And that really movement is a form of communication. So when I think back to gymnastics and, and then to dance, there were two things that really stayed with me. One was the discipline um, and the, the kind of naive, but important belief that I could do anything that came from gymnastics. So you learn um, at a young age in gymnastics that if you if there's a will, there's a way. You can figure out how to do that skill, um, even even if it seems to defy physics, the laws of physics and gravity. So that stayed with me. The discipline that associate was associated with training, the focus that was required, and then when I moved into dance, uh, what what I learned a lot about was simplifying ideas and. Uh, communicating effectively, because essentially dance is a way of communicating an idea or a story to somebody else. And often those people are um, audience members you've never met. So you're really going out on a limb. It's not like you can do a stakeholder analysis or market research and figure out what, uh, what your audiences are interested in, although maybe some dance companies do that now. 
but I, I learned that you needed to find kind of universal ways of communicating visually um, and in kind of three dimensions. And that has always uh, stayed with me. Um, I'm always thinking about the way that others, uh, looking through those others, uh, uh, you know, I'm using empathy to look through the eyes of others to understand and to try and see what they would see when I was communicating with them. So um, dance, like gymnastics, is quite short-lived. You know, there are very few dance artists that have had long careers. It's hard on the body. It's hard on your, your pocketbook. It's, um, it's hard on, your, on you know, your lifestyle. It's really hard to, um, to stabilize enough to feel like you can evolve in other parts of your life, whether that's wanting to um, pursue um, advanced um, career options or advanced education or even a family. So still dancing? We talk with people um, often who, who had maybe a lot of creativity and creative pursuits earlier in their life. And then, as you say, you, you start maybe a parallel life or life kind of takes over and a couple of them even, you know, put it on the back burner. And then later on in life, they realize they're not whole unless they're still expressing themselves in some way. Do you have kind of outlets now that have changed and, and uh, feed you and make you whole? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I have to say they've changed over the years. Uh, at first, you know, when I kind of officially transitioned from, from the dance sector, it took many, many years to kind of like officially wean off my daily dance-related routines. But when I kind of stopped dancing, I, I, I craved it physically and emotionally and psychologically. I really felt like there was a gap in my life. Frankly, that was filled quite quickly when I had kids. Um, and I'm not sure whether or not it was that I was living vicariously through them or whether or not I was just tired all the time, <laughs> but all of a sudden this drive to fulfill myself through dance, you know, disappeared. Um, and yet my, both of my kids love to dance and my husband loves music. And so our house is actually filled with dance and music a lot. We certainly don't kind of perform as a family, but I do find that, um, it's, it's been easier to introduce my children to dance with them knowing that I used to, you know, so there's kind of this door opening. It was a bit of a door opener for them. And so, you know, now um, we actually do, we, we use just dance a lot. <laughs> One of my favorite activities with my two boys is, um, is to uh, do just, just dance routines together. Um, and I'm, I get a lot of uh, joy from it. And I have to say, you know, when, when I danced as a, as a professional, there, it wasn't always joyful, you know, it was hard work and it was um, stressful at times and it was incredibly exhausting at times physically. Um, and so it's really been nice to return to dance as this ex personal expression, this collective exercise that we can do together and this joyful experience. You know, that said, one of the things that I've got kind of on my list of to-dos, and right now it's still at the bottom, but it's working its way up, is to become a certified gymnastics coach. Um, so I have started thinking about how can I bring some of the expertise that I developed when I danced um, and when, in fact, I did yoga because yoga was quite a part, quite a strong part of my dance training. And how can I bring that back to gymnastics? 
Um, because I see a, the way that the sport has evolved. I just finished, you know, overdosing on Olympic gymnastics. Um, and so I've got all sorts of notes about what I would do differently in terms of gymnastics coaching and training. The sport has, uh, has evolved. And I think there have been some, some gains for sure in terms of um, the power and the precision. But I think there has been some loss in terms of the personal expression and the artistry and um, the personalities behind the, um, behind the gymnasts. So uh, I've been thinking a lot about what it would look like if I went and did my gymnastics coaching certification and what it would look like if I made a transition from knowledge management into gymnastics coach that might coincide with a move out of the city because there really aren't that many gym clubs in Toronto. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but that's a down the road. And, and, you know, I, and generally speaking, I, I think a lot about my transitions well in advance. And, and I really start to kind of um, create a pathway for myself that works for me, that I feel comfortable with, that my family and the other people that would be impacted by my transition are comfortable with. And so I, I, um, I see this happening, but it's, it'll be, a, it'll be a, a long process until I get there. You mentioned a kind of a knack at uh, technology in the beginning, but it almost sounds like it's more of a knack of like pattern recognition, organization, and technology is one out of multiple things that you were able to apply that, like understanding what's the commonality between gymnastics and dance, you know, kind of communication and understanding how from a, like a new field, knowledge management, how you, like what you were doing, what could apply to that. And I wonder if, do you think this kind of pattern recognition, this kind of way of thinking is teachable? Because uh, we're talking about transitions of people and then this would be a great skill for people to also identify what they're good at and what they could be good at, even if it's in a different field. Oh, absolutely. I do think it's teachable. And I, I, I it, that may be controversial, I'm not sure, or maybe debatable. Um, but what I've noticed over the years is is the the codification of the approach. So really breaking it down and documenting how somebody goes about recognizing patterns is sometimes all that's needed. It's not that it's so much a skill, it's more of um, you know, a an understanding that this is possible and um, that there are there are techniques that can be used um, to surface over time patterns and then converge and diverge because the patterns don't stay the same. Unfortunately, they're, they're shifting. And so you do need to um, learn how to kind of move with the pattern <laughs> and, um, and, and not assume that it's ever going to be static. Now, sometimes the shifts in that pattern are small, sometimes they're big, but the bottom line is that they're not static. And so I think assuming that once you figured out a pattern, it's always going to stay this stay the same, at least in the kind of systems that we're working in now, the more complex systems of organizations and global organizations working in very, you know, volatile fields, that you have to kind of go into it knowing how, with an understanding that the pattern is not static. So once you've got those skills of pattern recognition is, I would say it's, it's adding to that the skill of being able to monitor and adapt your approach based on how the pattern shifts follow up on what Tony just said, because I thought it was a, a great insight is, you know, what your skill is, because you're applying that in your career, but you're also in this conversation, seeing the patterns in your life that connect. And I was thinking about that. I mean, mentioned, you know, we're working in very complicated systems and organizations, but probably the, the, the single unit, most complicated 
organization as a human right, trying to figure themselves out and, and seeing the, your own patterns. Yeah. Um, and we probably know people in our lives who you, you look at and you say, wow, that seems to be a pattern they keep <laughs> repeating. I wish they would learn something from that. Have you thought about kind of knowledge management, pattern recognition? I imagine you have, but it, in terms of a, just a personal kind of reflection that could be teachable to people terms of uh, helping people think about their own careers, their own lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few of them that have kind of, you know, they kept popping up in my life and I see them in others. Um, and one of them is this kind of concept of a pendulum swimming, swinging. And we often get quite polarized in our approach to our lives, to our decisions. And it's an it's a one or the other, and I think it's an either or. And and you know what I've what I've found to be far more successful is exploring the either and the or. So going to those extremes and understanding you know what it's like to approach something from a purely technical perspective versus what it's like to maybe approach something from in a more abstract or or um, organic perspective, and then finding that sweet spot in between where it makes sense given the problem that you're trying to solve in the context that you're trying to solve it. Because neither one is going to yield the most perfect result. We often are trying to find that silver bullet of like, well, if we solve this problem with a technical approach, then, you know, um, or we could solve this problem with a technical approach, or we could solve this problem with a more creative approach. It's neither. Um, It's both. So I would, I would, argue that feeling comfortable in both of those spaces is really important for all of us moving forward. And, and this idea, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm a huge advocate of um, uh, arts, arts-based training within the context of education. Uh, so I went to an arts high school. I was able to study physics and chemistry and mathematics Um, And I was also able to dance and doing both of those and feeling comfortable in both of those environments at the same time gave me kind of two toolboxes, at least, if not more, so that when I go to approach a problem and to try and solve it, I'm not thinking, oh, it's just going to be a technical solution or it's just going to be a creative solution. It's always both. And it's really about, you know, swinging on that pendulum enough as a person in your life so that you get better and better at identifying when you found that sweet spot. And that sweet spot obviously varies from position to position, from organization to organization, problem to problem, context to context. Get better at recognizing it when you've when you've explored those spaces. Um, we often, you know, want to specialize, and I totally, you know, I recognize how useful it is to specialize. It's it's easier to get recognized, frankly, when you specialize your in your in your field of work. Um, it's harder to explain what you do when you um, maybe spend time in more than one place, in more than one realm or industry or field of practice. That being said, you're limiting yourself. So I often encourage people who are technical to go and develop their creative side, to develop their um, comfort with ambiguity, to develop their ability to, ability to explore scenarios. And I do the, the opposite with those who are really comfortable exploring scenarios and, 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 creative, and, and comfortable pro- solving problems creatively. I encourage them to hone their technical skills so that they can bring them both to the table when there's a problem to be solved. You mentioned something earlier around um, your favorite topic, leadership. You said 
part of leadership is taking lessons you learn through transitions. And it sounds like exactly what you're doing. And then you just said you think a lot about transitions. Are there some things you do specifically that uh, we might share? Like, for example, taking a pause or a weekly review? Mm, yeah, sure. It depends on what type of transition. But um, for example, with job transitions, uh, professional transitions from one organization to another, I often recommend that people actually take a break from their job completely. Um, whether this this allows them to kind of detach from their work, from their team, from the culture, um, and think clearly about what's needed personally to kind of get to the next level from a professional perspective or not. I think, I mean, I think that's the, the, the core of it here. It's just, it's getting a little bit of distance before you make that next decision. Not always doable financially. I understand that. But if you can plan ahead, then it might be. Um, so I, I certainly recommend that. I think some of the best decisions that I've ever made career-wise have been when I've taken a break from working period and then made that decision during that time to myself. And then in terms of other types of transitions, I, I've noticed a lot of people um, feel like they, may, they need to make decisions quickly when they've got this idea that they're going to somehow run out of time. I used to say, I believe in reincarnation because there's simply not enough time in my lifetime to do all the things that I want to do. So when I look at my bucket list, it's so long, I've, I have to be reincarnated. There's just, there's just no way. And so if you have this kind of idea in your head that there's always going to be enough time, it will, you will be where you're supposed to be. Um, I think it takes a little bit of that pressure off from decision-making and allows the, the transition to unfold somewhat more naturally. And I really do believe in a lot of serendipity in the world. And so if you put out your desires, um, the universe is going to talk back to you. You know, you're going to start to get signals from the people around you that they want to help you make that transition. And so keeping yourself um, open to relationships, serendipitous relationships um, and connections that help you, you know, make that, that next step is really important. And I've really tried to weave that into my work. So um, I'm a member of an organization. Well, it's not really an organization. It's really just a network called Lunch Club. I, I kind of determine how much time I have to dedicate it, to dedicate to it every week. It might be an hour. It might be three. And uh, it's an AI-based system where I put in my availability, I put in what I'm interested in talking about and the subjects that I want to touch on, what I want to get out of a conversation. And then the AI matches me with somebody else who's got similar interests from anywhere around the world, um, matches us up in terms of our availability and time zones, matches us up in terms of our profiles and our interests and the, and the goal for the conversation. And I've had... So many um, a serendipitous conversations with people via a lunch club, but also the opportunity to talk out loud to a stranger about what I desire, what I'm afraid of, um, what's getting in my way, what do I need help with. Articulating that verbally has been really powerful for me. Some people journal, and I think that's probably also a really powerful way of getting clear about where we want to go. But for me, it's it's uh, saying it out loud. And um, so this, this venue has given me the opportunity to do that with so many people. I mean, even doing this here today, I feel like is helping me be clear about what I want to do next and where I want to go. Um, and so I would encourage people to take the time they need to have those conversations or to do that journaling, to express those ideas to someone somewhere in the universe 
and the path will start to unfold in a very in a very manageable way. That's great advice. And I think Lunch Club, I haven't heard of it, is an example of an amazing use of technology. That's great. Yeah, and particularly the Lunch Club seems like a great idea as well, just with more people working remotely, even just to keep that synergistic conversation happening within, a, within an organization where you might not see people. And I also want to second the, uh, the idea of talking out loud to someone. Um, I know even as a coach, I mean, that's the power of it is, you know, you're not really doing much even as a coach. Maybe you ask a question and the person just expresses something. They're really their own expert in their own life and they figure it out. But some people do need to say it out loud to someone, have a witness of some sort. So uh, it's totally very powerful. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a way of clarifying your ideas, yeah. you know, help getting some, you know, an accountability partner if you need it. And some people... You know, I think they get a little um, intimidated by the idea of having a coach. To me, have been, having been a gymnast, <laughs> it is like the greatest gift in the entire world to have somebody whose entire life is dedicated to helping you succeed. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. This has been wonderful and a uh, very enjoyable conversation. I don't have anything else. Tony, anything, last thoughts or questions? Uh, I will second uh, your words. It has been a wonderful conversation. Well, I've really enjoyed it for the great topics, for the great questions, um, and for your company today. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback, or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review, as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.